0: Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. The books of First uh, and Second Samuel—they—they of course tell the story. Of David's rise to power as king of Israel, how God anointed him as king after Saul, the the people's choice of king, was rejected by God. But they're they're filled uh, with some some really colorful stories. Uh, there's some really graphic and risque content uh, in the books first and second. Same people getting hacked to death, uh, body parts cut up and nail, you know, their decapitated corpses nailed to walls. So it's very, it's very graphic. We have David and his mighty men stuck in a cave while Saul uh, stinks up the place. Uh, You know, not a great story there. We've got Samuel's ghost coming back from the dead to give Saul a pretty graphic warning. And so they're very unique and very graphic stories. And today's story is really no exception. Uh, It's a wonderful story that really teaches us some very important things about how we worship. Now, worship style is a very controversial topic in churches. You know, most people, they, they choose the church that they attend because of the worship style, because it fits with what they think is correct. You know, some, some people, some churches are more somber. Uh, they sing, you know, kind of slow, you know, more melancholy, more praiseworthy hymns to God, and that's all they sing is hymns, and, you know, the one guy stands up here and, you know, waves his arms to the 4-4, and the three, there's really no emotion, but they're they're singing their traditional hymns. Other churches, uh, kind of, when you go there, they look like a rock concert with the laser lights and the smoke show, and, you know, people up there playing a cover of, you know, Highway to Hell, but it's Highway to Heaven, and so, you know, and people like that, and Uh, So it doesn't matter, you know, so people have very different ideas about what worship in a church should look like. You know, know, worship style uh, is really even a big deal for non-Christians. You know, Paul uh, tells us that unbelievers... Should be drawn to the Savior because of our worship. Doesn't mean that worship saves people, but it should show them something about God that they are drawn to Him. It says in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, Thus the secrets of His heart are revealed, and so falling down on His face, He will worship God and report that God is truly among you. See, worship should cause not just us as believers, but should cause unbelievers to experience the presence of God, and it should draw them to God. Now, on the other hand, a lot of unbelievers and many believers find worship an obstacle in church. There are some people, uh, I'm not saying any of you do this, uh, but there are some people that avoid church until the message because they don't like worship, they don't like singing, but they think, man, the, the, the message, I'm not, I'm not, I know, I looked over here, but I want to talk about y'all. <laughs> the message is, is the most important part. And yes, I will agree, the preaching of the Word of God is why we gather. It's the most important thing that we come here for, but the worship prepares our heart to receive the message that God has given us. And so this morning, we're going to walk through this story, and we're going to see how important worship is in our lives and some principles that we can apply to our, our lives this morning. So 1st look at 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse number 2. The Bible says, And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Belial of Judah, to bring up the, from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. Now, if you remember, way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel, uh, the ark of God was lost by the Israelites to the Philistines in battle. Eli's sons, they were losing a battle to the Philistines, and so they thought, hey, if we take the ark into battle, then we're going to win, and it's understandable why. If you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you see what happens when the ark comes around, you know, people's face melt off. And uh, so they're like, hey, we're going to take this out and we're going to kill the Philistine Nazis. And so they take the ark out and God is not with them. And so they lose the ark. And the Philistines take it back to their hometown and they, they put it in the temple of one of their gods, Dagon, kind of as a trophy of like, hey, look, our God's better than their God and we've stolen their God and this is awesome. The very next morning they wake up and the entire city is infested with mice. The leaders of the Philistine nation have terrible hemorrhoids. They go into the temple of Dagon. Dagon has fallen over. And so they put Dagon back up and think it's just a fluke. The very next morning, their hemorrhoids are worse. The mice are worse. They go back in the temple. The Dagon's fallen down again. And this time, his nose is broken off and his hands have broken off. And so the Philistines say, you know what? We don't want this thing here. So they put it on a cart. Put some oxen on the cart. And they, they give a kind of a, a, an I'm sorry gift to Israel. And their I'm sorry gift is a bunch of golden hemorrhoids. Look, fellas, if you mess up, don't give your wife golden hemorrhoids to say you're sorry, all right? Uh, it's, just, it's not very classy, but for some reason they make some golden hemorrhoids. They stick them on the ark. They send the oxen away towards Israel. And as it crosses into Israel... An Israelite man there. He he sees the ark, and so he kind of takes it for himself. His name is Shemesh, and he sees the ark, and he leads it the oxen back to his home. I and mean, you can't blame him. Hey, free ark! You know, a great great opportunity there. And so he 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 uh, brings it to his home. Now, a couple people in his home see the ark in his in his uh, his shed. And the ark at this time, it it contained some things. It contained uh, Aaron's rod that had budded. It contained some manna from there. And it contained the the Ten Commandments that God had given Moses. And so they get curious, and they open up the ark to see what's inside. And again, the Bible doesn't tell us that their faces melted off, but it doesn't tell us that they didn't either. So maybe their faces melted off like it did in the Nazis in in World War II. uh, But we don't know. But we do know it kills them immediately. So Shemesh here, he's like, you know what? This is is dangerous to have around, and I don't want my kids messing with this. And so he calls some priests from the next town over and asks them to take it away. So the priests come to Shemesh's house, and they take it away, but they don't take it back to the tabernacle. They leave it with a guy named Amenadab, and they put it in his house for 20 years. Now, Amenadab's a smart guy. He puts it in a spare bedroom. He locks the door. He shuts the windows. No one goes in to see the ark for 20 years. Now, David is king. And David says, you know what? The ark doesn't belong in Aminadab's house. It belongs in a tabernacle. It belongs where God intended for it to be. So he sends some men to go and get it. Start in verse number 3. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Aminadab. And it was in Gibeah, and Uzzah uh, and Iho, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab. Uh, which was at Geba, accompanying a the Ark of God, and Ahijah went before the Ark, and David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on the manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on and on the timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. So while the, they're heading to the tabernacle, David's there, the priests are there, the, 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 a lot of the nation of Israel there, and they are, they are just having a praise party. They are singing, they are playing songs, they are worshiping before God. They are just so happy to see the ark coming home. Look at verse number six. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. This seems to me, and we're going to see later on to David, seems extreme. Seems a little harsh. You know, Uzzah, he, he wasn't looking in the ark to try to see what was in there. The ark was on this cart, and it hits a bumpy road because, of course, there was no V-dot back in that day, and even if there was, there were still, you know, there's still potholes all over our road. So they hit, uh, hit a rock, and the ark started tipping and was going to fall over from the cart onto the dirt. And So Uzzah, trying to protect the ark, he just runs forward and just pushes it back up on the ark to try to protect it, keep it off the ground, and God immediately strikes him dead. Now, when you're reading the verse there and it says error, you see the word translated error there. It implies a lack of respect. So the Bible says here, God killed Uzzah because he did not respect the ark of God, which when I read it, I don't see that. I see him respecting it. He's trying to keep it clean. He's trying to keep it upright, but God judges him harshly. Look at verse number eight. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. I love how honest the Bible is here. David is mad at God for how God treated Uzzah. He's angry with what God had done. Look, here's the thing. We are not the first generation of, of humans in the world to be offended by what the Bible says or some of the actions we find in Scripture. There's a lot of things in the Bible I don't like. There are some things that make me mad. There are some things I don't agree with, with what God does and what God allows. I mean, here we got a guy, Uzzah, who's he's trying to help God. He's trying to protect the ark. He's not, he's not being disrespectful. He's not you know, trying to steal it so he can get the power to defeat the allied army in World War II. He's, he's doing what God he's trying to help God out and God smites him dead. But yet later earlier on in Genesis we've got Lot who abandons his family who abandons God God has to drag him out of Sodom and Gomorrah so he doesn't get killed he goes into a mountain gets drunk two nights in a row and has sex with his daughters creates two new generations of people and in the New Testament God calls him righteous like that guy is righteous but Uzzah here? you're killing him because he disrespected God? I just I don't understand it there are some things that I read that I just it, it offends me it bothers me. And, but like David, I've learned to trust God, even in the things I don't agree with. Because God is God, and I'm not. I don't understand his entire plan. See, God in heaven, he doesn't see things from day to day like we do. He sees all eternity laid out. He knows that what he did does today, how it's going to affect future generations, and so it's not my responsibility to question God or to try to correct God. It's okay for me to get angry with God when, when I pray for something to happen and God does the exact opposite. When I pray for healing and someone still goes on to heaven, when I pray for God for deliverance and it doesn't happen, I can get angry, I can get upset, but I still have to trust God because he's God and I'm not. I'm just, I'm just me. I don't need to understand why he does what he does. I just have to trust him. Look at verse number 9. <clears throat> and David was afraid of the Lord that day. Now, again, afraid here doesn't mean he's coward in fear. It means respect. David had, he was, he was upset with what God did, but he still respected God. He says, God, you're still in charge. I still respect you. I am still going to honor you. And he said, how shall the ark of, God, of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So David, he's, he's, he's upset with God, he's fearing God, he's respecting God, and he says, you know what, this is a, you know, I'm, not, I'm not worthy right now to be bringing the ark back. I'm not in a position right now to worship God like I should, so I'm going to leave the ark. And he leaves the, the ark with a guy who's not even an Israelite. Now, we see a few things in this story that help us with our worship. First thing we see... Number one, we see our problem. Our problem. Connor, next slide. There you go. We see this with Uzza. What was he supposed to do? Let the ark hit the ground? It could break? It would definitely get dirty. It might spill open. And if it spills open and all the contents go out, no one can touch it to put it back. So what's he supposed to do? Uh, he was trying to protect the ark. So, to me and to David, the punishment seems way more severe than the crime. But the point is that God is telling us the punishment fits the crime exactly. And here's why. God, in Exodus chapter 25, God had given Israel specific instructions on how to move the ark. The ark, it, was, it had these loops on the side of it, and they would put these golden rods through the loops, and then priests, Levitical priests, would put the ark on their shoulders, and they would carry the ark that away. And so they would put a covering on the ark while they were transporting it, so no one would, would die for looking upon it, that no one would accidentally touch it. God had given them very specific instructions on how to do what they were doing. Israel... Chose to ignore God's command. They chose. They said, "You know what? We're not going to do that. We're going to put it on. We're going to put it on a cart." And look, Bible says it was a new cart. Maybe it was a fancy cart. We don't know. Maybe it had you know all kinds of LED lights on it and you know, Bluetooth speakers to praise God. We don't know what it was. It was a Lexus cart. No matter how good the cart was, that's not how God said to move it. And where did they get this idea? Well, when the Philistines sent it out of Israel, what they sent it out of the Philistine, they put it on a cart. So Israel, David here, is taking kind of a cue from the Philistines on how to move the ark, how to treat the ark, and God said that's not how you're supposed to do it. We don't decide how we get to worship and obey God. God's already decided that. It's our responsibility just to obey his word. But the bigger issue here is that Uzzah was unaware of his own sinfulness. He was unaware of how filthy his hands were in the eyes of God. He saw the ark, and he didn't want the ark to touch the ground because the ground was dirty. But Uzzah's hands were dirtier than any any ground they could go through. R.C. Sproul said this. He said the dirt never rebelled against the authority of God. Only sinful man had done that. It wasn't the dirt on the ground that would defile the ark. It was the touch of a man that would. See, our sin makes us more offensive to the holiness of God than the filthiest dirt on the planet. Bible tells us that our righteousness in our own strength and our own ability and our own self-worth, our righteousness is as filthy rags. That doesn't mean just some, you know, a dirty dish towel you've got sitting on your counter here. It literally talk it's talking about rags that they would wrap lepers Body parts in. They would. If you had leprosy on your arm, you would wrap it on there. And now, remember, back here, back in this day, they didn't have you know uh, triple antibiotic ointment. They didn't have uh, peroxide and alcohol and stuff. They would just get the cleanest rag they could and wrap their open wounds with it. And those wounds would become infected and filled with blood and pus and disease. And God says, "That's what your righteousness is to me." Didn't matter how how good Uzzah's intentions were doesn't matter how good his heart was in the eyes of god he was wicked and filthy now you may think well i'm not that i'm not my sins aren't that bad i've never done anything too terrible that's because you're looking at yourself instead of looking at god's holiness haggai says that god is so holy he can't even look or wickedness see we don't realize when we compare ourselves to god And we come into his presence, we don't realize how truly wicked we are. That's why in the Old Testament, no one could look on God. Even Moses, Moses says, God, can I, can I see your face? And God says, no, you can't see me. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and cover you up with my hand. And then you can see my backside as I go through because no one is holy and righteous enough to see God without being killed because of it. So H- H- Uzzah, he touched God's holiness with filthy hands, and God killed him because of it. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you have your Bible with you, have your Bible in your hands? Let me... Hold them up. If you got a Bible in your hand, you are touching the very words of God. The holy, righteous words of God. How come God didn't kill you? Are you better than Uza? No, of course you're not. That brings us to our second point. We see our problem. second thing we see is God's answer. The ark not only shows us our problem with God's presence... But it also shows us the answer. Look at uh, chapter 6 again. Look at verse number 11. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom, and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of the Lord. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. See, God was sending David a message. David, my intention wasn't to punish you. It wasn't to, to be too harsh to someone. It wasn't to, to you know, make you afraid. My purpose, my plan, my, my goal with my presence is to bless you. So David's faith was rekindled, and he, he sends the, the priest back to Obed-Edom to retrieve the ark. Look at verse 13. And it was so that when they bear the ark of the Lord... They, uh, the, when, when, uh, that bear, when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. First thing we notice is they're finally doing it right. They don't have a cart. They are, took the Levitical priest down there. They took their golden sticks. They put it to the ark, and they are carrying the ark the way God had told them to carry it. And every six steps, they stop. And they make a sacrifice to God. Now, it's going to take a very long time for them to get back to the tabernacle. But they are showing their love and their respect to God. So every six steps, they make a sacrifice to God. God has given us a way to safely enter his presence. And it's through sacrifice. The most important feature of the ark, it wasn't the the contents that were in. It wasn't the, the Ten Commandments. It wasn't the Aaron's you know, staff that had some rose, some buds on it. It wasn't the manna or the showbread. It was none of that. The most important feature of the ark was the mercy seat. Because the mercy seat was where you would take the blood of a sacrifice once a year, and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and God would cover their sins for a year. Now, the, the animal sacrifice it wasn't a, a quaint little ceremony. I think sometimes, again, we kind of have these, you know, kind of ideas about how, you know, the Old Testament was and kind of, you know, fantasize I mean, them in the Old Testament sacrifice. The priest would just, you know, gently slice open the lamb's throat and the lamb never felt nothing and blood just kind of tricking. No, no, it was gory. It was bloody. It was messy. It was painful for the lamb, and it had to be because the lamb was dying for their sins. And that death, the death that Uzzah had, his his death of being unholy in the presence of a holy God had to be reenacted every single time. That's what the gospel is. God... Would send us the Lamb of God, not to cover our sins, but to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus, like those lambs, he would die in our place once and for all. See, Jesus wasn't killed because he didn't have a good attorney or because he made the wrong people, the different people mad. He was killed for our sins, he was killed for our lack of respect for. For God. On the cross, He absorbed the wrath of God for our sins. It was bloody. It was gruesome. It was unmerciful. And God poured His wrath out for my sins and for your sins on Jesus on that cross. He died to pay the price for my sins, was buried and rose again three days later to reconcile me with God the Father. You know, Revelation tells us, if you've been coming to our Sunday Night Bible studies, you've kind of been studying Revelation, and, you know, one day at the rapture of the church, we are all going to receive a glorified body. One day when we receive that glorified body, here's the good news, you're not going to have any more pain. How many of y'all woke up with some aches this morning? It's how you know you're you're a generation X or higher. You wake up and your back hurts. You throw your back out by sneezing. I've done that a couple times. I've slept wrong and felt like I was crippled for a month and a half. What'd you do? I slept wrong. And you know, how do you sleep wrong? But I did. And so, but one day I'm not going to have those aches and pains anymore. I'm not going to have to worry about sickness and disease and all. This. I'm not going to worry about growing old. Or look, here's a good. You're not going to have to count your calories one day. One day, you're not going to have to worry about your cholesterol level or anything else. Diabetes is going to be a thing of the past. You can swim around in a vat of banana pudding and slurp it all up and be fine. We'll have no scars, no wounds, no nothing. There'll be one person in heaven who has scars, though, and that's Jesus. The Bible says he's going to have scars in his hands, scars in his feet, and scars in his side. Now, why is that? Heard one preach a story to kind of explain it. And he, said, he says, this is a true story, but he was preaching, so I don't know. But he tells a story about this husband and wife, and they were, they were out one day walking, and all of a sudden this, this terrible storm came upon them and started raining, and so they started running. And then the rain turned to hail. and started hitting them. And the hail kept getting bigger and bigger, and they were nowhere near their car or shelter. So the husband... Covered his wife up. He, he laid on top of her and covered her to protect her from the hailstorms. And the hailstones kept getting bigger and bigger. And by the time the storm was over, his wife was safe. But he'd been beaten and bloodied. He had scr- cuts and gouges on his head and his hands. and just He was a mess. They took him to the hospital. They you know, treated him. He had concussion from all the damage. And by the time he healed, he still had scars on his head and face from protecting her. And one person asked her, said, What do you think about when you see those scars? She said, When I see those scars, I love him even more because it reminds me of what he did for me. That's what the scars of Jesus are for for us. We see those scars in his hands. We see those scars in his feet. We see the scar in his side. We see the, the damage, the, 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 the pain that he endured for us, and it makes us remember what he did for us, and we are reminded by how much he loves us. And it makes us love him more. He bears the marks of our redemption for all of eternity. There will be an eternal reminder that the only reason we are there is because of his sacrifice. Because he stood between God and man and absorbed the wrath of God for us. That leads us to our final point. We see our problem. We see God's answer. Third thing we see is our response. Look at verse number 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. Now, when you really get into this, David's response To bringing the ark back. Connor, next slide. David's response to bringing the ark back was he is dancing in front of the ark in his underwear. What is your response to God's salvation on you? Now, don't do that, please. I'm not saying God tells us to dance before the church. No, I'm not. Please do not do that. But David is so excited, he is so thankful to have God's presence returns, so that he, he dances before the Lord. He dances before all of Israel in his underwear. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering uh, burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dwelt among the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the women and men, to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants and as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovered himself. David is, is so excited have the ark back. He's dancing before it as they lead it in. He's offering sacrifices. They have a huge celebration together with all the people of Israel. His wife sees him, and she criticizes him for what he did. And here's why. She is upset because, in her opinion, in her eyes, David's embarrassed himself in front of the nation. And by embarrassing himself, he's embarrassed her. Now we remember from last week, Michael here was David's first wife. He Saul's daughter, David truly loved her, uh, Michael truly loved him, but after David's exile, Ma, uh, Saul took Michael and gave her to another man and when David becomes king, he goes and takes her from this husband who obviously loved her because he's following after her, weeping and crying because he's lost his wife and he's upset, but David doesn't care. And David didn't get Michael back because David loved Michael. He got Michael back because she was beneficial to him. He broke up a happy marriage to benefit himself. So it's kind of understanding why Michael is upset with David. Look at verse number 21. And David said unto Michael, it was before the Lord which chose me before, my, before thy father and before all this house uh, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play before the Lord, and I will, be, I will yet be more vile than thus and will be based in mine own sight, and in the man, and of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I, be, shall, shall I be had in honor. Now, the word vile there means, it can be translated undignified. Here's what David's saying. Michael, God chose me to be king when I was nothing. He brought me out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a rock. He's my shepherd. I'm not going to want He goes, now now that I'm something, I'm going to show everyone that it's not because of me. It's because of God. It's because of what God has done for me, and I don't care how ridiculous it makes me seem. See, Saul always cared about what other people thought about him. Michael has the same problem. She cares about what the peasants think about David. What are the maidservants and the the men servants? what are the people going to think if you're dancing around excited, you know, dancing around in your underwear just because God's back? What are they going to think about you? She cares about what other people think about her and David. To Michael, it's all about appearances. David doesn't care what other people think of him because David doesn't want people to think about him at all. He wants them to think about God. When the peasants see David's love for God, it's going to help them see that there's no difference between them and the king. See, David here gives us the essence of worship. Worship is putting God's worthiness on display. When we worship God, We are declaring God's glory for others to see. What does your worship tell others about how much you love and cherish God? Do other people see God's joy in you when they see how you worship God? Do they see how valuable God is to you by the way you worship God? In our services. Now look, I'm not trying to judge you, but how you participate in the worship of God shows other people how much you love God. So if you would if you sit here and you sing like you'd rather be somewhere else, you know, we sang some great songs this morning. You know, it is well with my soul if you sat there. It is well with my soul. Is it? Is it really well with your soul? If you sit there and say, Oh Lord, haste the day, haste this message for goodness sake. wish you would hurry up and shut up so I can get to O'Charlie's old, to old or something. Do they even have O'Charlie's anymore? But you know, when you're, how you worship and sing tells other people what you think and how you feel about God. So if you're always on your phone or if you're not even singing, you know, some people think, man, to them, God must not be worthy of praise. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, pastor, that's all well and good, but I'm not a very expressive person. I keep my emotions kind of close to the chest, so that gives me an excuse. I agree. Look, do not be someone you are not in worship just to make someone happy. But how do you respond to other things? You know, if you've been paying attention, the lottery is up to uh, over a billion dollars. How many of y'all knew that? A couple of you. How many of y'all have played because of that? Liars. Look, I'll pray over your ticket as long as you promise to tithe. All right? You promise to give your 10%, I'll pray over it. I'll anoint it with oil. I'll do whatever. I'll, I'll baptize that sucker. I don't care. Whatever you want to do. But look. If you, and I've told you this before, I don't play the lottery, but years and years ago when it got up several seriously high, Food Line was giving away tickets when you bought food, and me and April went to the Food Line, and they gave me a ticket. And I prayed over that ticket. I was like, God, I didn't buy this ticket. I'm not gambling here. You know, this isn't me spending my money. To, I'm not, Lord, you gave me this ticket. Help this ticket to win. God did not answer that prayer for me. But look, you walk outside, and you find the winning lottery ticket, and you win a billion dollars. You're going to pick up that ticket and go, Oh, that's nice. No, now look, you may not tell anybody because you don't want, you know, your third cousin once removed coming out of the woodworks to borrow money from you. Uh, But look, a billion dollars can change your identity very, very quickly. But you're going to get excited. You're going to yell. You're going to scream. You're going to, woo, I can't believe I did it. Hopefully you will tell your spouse and not just vanish. You know, like leave a note, sorry, peace out, not tell them what happened. But you're going to be excited you're going to cheer. You're going to be happy. You know, one time in the Gospels, a woman, she comes to Jesus while Jesus is eating. And she gets under the table. She weeps and washes his feet with her tears and her hair. And a lot of people, a lot of religious people gather around that table thought she was being undignified. She shouldn't show, show so much emotion. But Jesus didn't care. It says in Luke 7, 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Here's what Jesus is saying. The more you're forgiven, the more you love God. And the more you show that love to God. So here may be the problem. You don't realize how much you've been forgiven. Because I was raised in church my dad's a deacon. I'm a deacon. You know, I, was a, I, I never did anything wrong. You know, I never, you know, never drank or smoked or cussed or any of that. I was a good guy. When I was raised, all I watched was Andy Griffith and, you know, all those good shows. And, look, Barney was a rapey Andy Griffith. Andy Griffith ain't as holy as we think it is. Barney was a little rough. Uh, but all I watched was Andy Griffith and I Love Lucy and all these wonderful shows, and so I'm a good person. You don't realize how wicked you were before you got saved. But those who are forgiven much, love much. So, that said, there are two principles we need to know. And these two principles go hand in hand. We have to understand and believe and live both of them. And here's the thing. If you like one, you ain't gonna like the other. But here's the first principle. Different people express emotions differently. That's just, everybody has different ways to express emotions. You know, uh, different cultures, different generations express their emotions differently. We also have different ways of expressing emotion and reverence in worship. You know, all all churches worship differently. Have you ever been to a a Pentecostal church? Sometimes the, the people in the back, they're like, they're stretching before the service. Because when it gets on, they're going to be running around and all kinds of stuff and jumping and, and praising God. I was at, when I was on deputation, I went to this one church. It wasn't a Pentecostal church, it was a Baptist church. But, man, it scared the fire out of me. Because a preacher said, hey, brother, why don't you come and pray with the men before the service? And I'm like, great, we're going to go, we're going to pray. And I get in there, and they thankfully didn't ask me to lead in prayer because I wouldn't have known what to, but they're like, all right, we're just praying. So I thought it was going to be like regular, Lord, bless the service. And I start praying, and these guys are like, oh, Lord, jumping around and stomping and screaming. I'm like having a heart attack, like what are these people doing? They scared the fire out of me. So what did you do? I was trying to get money. I danced with them. I didn't care. You know, I, was trying to get, I was trying to raise money for the church, so I had to do what I had to do. But, you know, some people are, are expressive. Sometimes you go to some of these even Baptist churches, but, you know, it's usually more Methodist churches, and they're very solemn. They're very quiet in their worship. If you've ever been to a, a predominantly black church, they will sing for hours. If they, got a, if they get, get out before 2 o'clock, it's an early day. If I did that, you would riot. <laughs> which one's right? Are we supposed to be running around, jumping and shouting, solemnly, singing hymns to God, pra- singing for hours and praising God? It doesn't matter you know, which is right from a biblical perspective. Here's the answer. All of them. Everyone worships differently. When we elevate our worship preferences over others, We're doing exactly what God told Samuel not to do when he chose David. Remember, David, Samuel got there, and he saw David's oldest brother and said, man, this is the right one. And God said, no, 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 you're looking on the outside. Doesn't matter what the outside looks like, how's your heart? How's your heart? So in worship, your heart is what matters. So if you sat there and thought I was picking on you, when I said you're singing real solemnly, hey, maybe that's how you express emotions, that's how you were raised in church, whatever. That's why everyone expresses worship differently. That's the first principle. But here's the second one, and we've got to realize they're both true. All worship, all worship has elements of passion and self-forgetfulness. Self and Sam, 2 Samuel 6, David told Michael, he goes, I'm going to make myself more vile when I worship God. Now remember, he means undignified. What David is saying here, he doesn't, he's not saying I'm gonna get graphic in my worship. What he's saying is, when I worship God, I'm gonna forget about me. I'm gonna forget about who I am. Yeah, I'm the king, I'm the king of Israel, and I deserve respect and honor and reverence. But before I'm a king, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Who God reached down and pulled out of the miry clay, who God has placed. I'm not here because of anything I've done, Michael. I'm here because God placed me here. And when I worship God, I'm going to forget about myself. He didn't care what others thought about him. He wanted to care about what God thought about him. So, yes, we all worship. We all express emotions differently, but all worship to have passion and self-forgetfulness. See, we see that in the book of Psalms. More than 20 times in the book of Psalms, we are commanded to raise our hands in worship. Psalms 88, 9. My eye is dim from my affliction. Lord, I can uh, I call daily upon you, and I have stretched out my hands to you. Psalm 143, 6. I stretch forth my hands unto you. My soul thirsts after you as a thirsty land. Psalms 28. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy place. Psalms 134, 2. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. See, all these times where David says, I'm going to lift my hands up, they are verbs, and they are in the imperative tense, which means they are a command from God. David says, God, you've commanded me to lift my hands to you, and I'm going to do that. Archaeological studies have found depictions of Old Testament worshipers worshiping God with their hands Raised. We see this in the New Testament too. 1 Timothy, therefore, I desire that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath or contentiousness. Also, throughout the book of Psalms, we are commanded to shout and loudly clap our hands and worship to God. We are to praise God and let other people know about it. Well, I'm not that type of person, I don't feel like being expressive. In my worship, I don't feel like raising my hand when God lays on my heart. I don't feel like clapping if God lays on my heart. When does your feelings have anything to do with your obedience to God? Look, if you've met a believer and you're talking to him and you ask him, hey, how are you doing in your, your Bible reading? You say, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I really got to read my Bible or pray. You're going to say, oh, well, if you don't feel like you should obey God, then go and obey God. Well, you know what? I feel like that whole thou shalt not kill commandment's a little restrictive. Oh, that's how you feel. Our feelings don't matter when it comes to worshiping God. Now, again, I'm not trying to get you out here. Here's what I'm saying. If you're sitting here worshiping and you feel, man, I want to raise my hands. I want to shout. I want to praise God. Don't care what anyone else thinks about you. Say, hey, I feel, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what God's in mark. You want to, you feel like running around here and praising God? Look, I, go for it. I'm not going to stop you. Now, you start talking in tongues, meaning you can have a talk afterwards. Mainly, did you have a stroke? <laughs> but, hey, if you want to run and praise God, run and praise God. You want to get up and shout and jump? Woo! Well, that's undignified. Who cares what anyone thinks about you but God? Worship how God wants you to Worship. Worship isn't based on how I feel. It's, wor- it's based on how worthy God is of praise. We need to worship like David did. Now, again, you can run around. You can praise God. You start stripping down to your underoos, we're going to get rid of you. So don't be dancing in your underwear in church. You can dance in your underwear in your bedroom before God. But here, you can dance. You can say, "Ooh, I'm praising God. Just keep your clothes on. Amen? Ain't nobody want to see that. Say, well, David did it. You ain't David. We need to put the worthiness of God and the gratefulness of our salvation on display for others to see. Psalm says, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a joyful voice. I want to close with looking at verse number 19. Chapter 6, verse 19. And he dwelt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the women, as men, to everyone a cake of bread a, and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Now, when you really look at the Hebrew there, that cake of bread, it's a raisin cake. Um, and so David, he's, he, he worships God, he sacrificed to God, and everybody's there. He gives them some wine, he gives them a raisin cake and sends them home. Now, a raisin cake in Israel, was a known aphrodisiac. That's why once everybody got it, everybody went home. Because that's what was intended. Uh, Now, the point that the Bible's making here is worshiping God and praising God and worshiping through the gospel, it makes you spiritually fruitful. You produce spiritual fruit by your intimate worship With Jesus. Now look it down at verse number 23. Because everybody's doing this. Everybody's worshiping God. They all got their raisin cakes and wine. They all went home. Except Michael. Remember Michael? She's critical. She's complaining that David's making a fool of himself. Verse 23. Therefore, the Michael of daughter... Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the ever death. Now, this is not saying that infertility is a punishment from God because it's not. It's a burden a lot of people carry, but it's not a punishment from God. What the God is telling us here, and one of the main reasons she had no children is because after this, David had nothing to do with her anymore. David said, well, I'm not going to have it. i you know, I'm, not, I'm a, I'll stay married to you, but we're not going to have a good marriage. Of course, David had other wives to worry about. But really, what God is saying here is God put an end to the spiritually infertile, self-focused line of Saul. signs Saul's line was so consumed with what people thought of them. God said, I'm going to put an end to that. God's king was going to come through a line that understood the purpose of worship. Well, was going to come through a line that didn't feel undignified by putting God's glory on display. So here's what I'm going to ask you this morning as we close. How do you worship God? Do you truly show people how valuable God is to you in your worship to God? That's the real question we need to answer. Do you care what people think about you or what God thinks about you? So again, I'm not sure if you're you're a solemn worshiper, be a solemn. If that's what God has made you to be, be that. But if you're a solemn worshiper and you're here and we're singing and the Spirit gets on you and says, man, I should raise my hand or clap my hands, don't think, oh, but what are, what are people going to think? Who cares? Who cares what people think about you? Your worship is to show other people how wonderful God is. So if you have received Christ as your Savior, Does it show it how you worship him? Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.